Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ballarama Heller's practice reimagines archetypal symbols found in the natural world. He explores these symbols, patterns, both real and imagined, working towards a visual language of proverbial awareness. These symbols interact in a ceaseless cycle of creation and destruction, referencing the cosmological, mythological and atomic scales. During our conversation, we talk about how the personal informs his work. We talk about research and his recent shift away from direct observation to a more reduced and refined version of his vision. And in turn, it's also about reaching for sensation for him and really thinking about the origin moment of life. In my work, I'm always trying to connect to this kind of creative well of source or this primordial whirlpool where things are originating from. This like moment of birth or inception where things take form in their very first state. I'm Jen Fletcher and this is The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. Ballarama Heller is a New York-based artist who has exhibited widely from 303 Gallery, Fortnite Institute, Red Hook Labs, and most recently in an exhibition curated by the Aperture Foundation and Artsy. In addition to his busy art practice, he's worked commercially and editorially, having work published in a wide variety of titles from the New York Times to Vogue. Let's jump into my conversation with Ballarama. I want to start by talking about your upbringing because in many ways it's so connected to your art practice. So could you tell us a little bit about how you were raised and yeah, maybe how it informed your work? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in the US in the Hare Krishna movement, otherwise known as ISKCON. My mother ran away from home at 17, went to Boulder, Colorado. Long story short, she joined the Hare Krishnas, had an arranged marriage in the tradition of Vedic India at 18. And then they were told to go to this commune in West Virginia where they were kind of settling this wild land. And they started developing it just with two oxen and an axe. So is the story. <laughs> and yeah. And they just began working the land and trying to build this kind of utopia that was modeled after kind of ancient Indian ways of living. And I don't know, for those of you who are not familiar with the Hare Krishnas, it's an ancient religion based out of India, where the primary god is Krishna. It's what I would consider kind of like a subset of Hinduism. And despite its kind of veneer of happy, <laughs> hippie love, and it is true, Krishna is the god of love. It's it's very orthodox and fundamentalist. So on the surface, there's a lot of like, ecstasy and dancing and chanting. And there is a real vein of that that is authentic. But when you get down to the core principles, rules and regulations, it's it's very rigid, orthodox system. So 
Yeah, we, we grew up in that. Uh, we moved around from ashram to ashram throughout the United States until I was about 12. And then we kind of started assimilating into mainstream society. So up until that point, I was kind of dressed in traditional Indian garb, wearing saffron dhoti. I had a shaved head and a little sika. <laughs> and I was going to the airport to proselytize and sell books. I remember at the Denver, Denver, Colorado airport or parks doing like public chanting and selling books, giving out little sweets and having battles with fundamentalist Christians, evangelical Christians who would come out to uh, oppose us. It was always this like ongoing thing, which was at the time really funny, but mm-hmm. also kind of menacing. And then I started assimilating into kind of public school. I changed my name briefly from Balarama to Paul, just because I felt like, I don't know, I really needed to, I I was really grappling with this identity, having grown up outside of mainstream American culture. I had no TV. I didn't really know anything about pop culture. And as I moved into public school with this strange name, it just made sense to me. I think I, I had seen or my grandfather told me about the film Cool Hand Luke. Mm-hmm. And I looked it up at the video store and I saw Paul Newman and I was like, he seems cool. I watched the movie and I was like, I'm going to call myself Paul. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and that lasted for about, I think, just three years I identified as that. And then I had this kind of reclamation of identity and I was like, wow, Balarama is a unique name and it has all this power and and lineage and heritage. So I reclaimed my name. Balarama means the the source of spiritual strength and he's the the brother of Krishna in Hindu mythology. Yeah, so that's kind of how we grew up. There was lots of ritual, waking up at 4 a.m., going to the temple, reciting Sanskrit prayers. Yeah, there is a lot of emphasis on chanting and meditation and kind of self-discipline. And there's sort of this line between austerity or like self-deprivation to raise awareness that you are not the body. That's kind of one of the main principles of Hare Krishna is that you are not the body, don't identify with the body. And so through acts of austerity, through fasting or, or whatever, you, I guess, raise awareness of that inside yourself. So how did your relationship with spirituality evolve over time? Well, I guess I, as I got older, I began to become much more aware of the inherent hypocrisies inside of the religion. I mean, it's kind of the oldest story in the book, a hyper-idealistic philosophy run by a patriarchy. (laughs) There is going to be this manifestation of power abuses and inconsistencies. And as I, as my kind of like critical thinking faculties came online more, I became acutely aware of them and couldn't reconcile that. And that kind of caused a fissure and I broke away from that. But yeah, I I think that seeded something really important in my life, the kind of visual culture that I grew up in and the the sense of ritual and tradition and the kind of cosmology that Hinduism gave me is still with me very much today. And the sense of my life's kind of purpose is to understand the nature and truth of reality as much as I possibly can. So in a sense, spirituality is is still 
my main point of investigation. That's really what all of my work is an expression of is, yeah, just trying to parse out what the fabric of reality is. I know that sounds very grandiose, but um, those, those kind of grand ontological questions have always haunted me and driven me and trying to create some sort of language and meaning through my art. So tell me a little bit about when photography entered your life. How did that happen? Well, my mother actually was a photographer. She studied art photography at Hampshire College. She started that when I was about five years old. And this was kind of an intermittent period when we were outside of the ashram. Because we just, as I mentioned, we were very nomadic. So she would bring me to photography lectures. And I just kind of absorbed her practice, which at that time was making anthropomorphic images of trees in the forest. And these trees were always kind of in some, oftentimes in some erotic embrace. (laughs) And her way of seeing did really influence me because she would see nature in this kind of personified mode. And it was just something I kind of grew up with. I didn't really take too much deep note of it. And then as I became in my mid to late teens, I found my way into photography on my own. And it really just became this way for me to start puzzling reality together, making visual sense of the world and allowing me a process and a practice to find myself and explore the physical world that was also a reflection of my inner world. And then I went to University of Massachusetts for, I think it was just a semester or a year and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I took a lot of film courses, like self-reflexive avant-garde film. And that really broke open everything for me. And I knew I didn't want to pursue film, but I wanted to kind of take that kernel of experimental artistic introspection, which that world of filmmaking provided me into still photography. And so I I ended up going to an art school. Yeah, it's interesting because you started off as a kind of observational photographer, maybe even rooted more in like classic documentary. But then it feels like, you know, after completing a few different bodies of work, you really found your footing making nocturnal work, in particular Zero at the Bone, which we can unpack in a minute. But I was curious what drew you to making work at night, because it feels a sort of signature part of your practice now. Why was that so sort of transformational for you? I fell into photographing at night. I was on a portrait assignment in Miami, and I met this guy who was a herpetologist, and his hobby was to go into the Everglades at night to kind of track reptiles, and particularly the Burmese python, which is an invasive species there. And he invited me out. And when I began photographing, I was using a flash. I went out several times with him, and I started realizing that photographing at night and what I was looking at, kind of honing in on these details and an an abstraction started pushing through. And yeah, under the kind of cover of night, things that ordinarily in daylight would look kind of banal, take on this new kind of sheen or essentiality. And that just fascinated me. Everything looks more theatrical. I could play with framing more, I could make, I could make it more reflective of 
the images I had in my head. There was a lot more control. And that was kind of the jumping off point for me for night photography. And I've pretty much been doing that ever since. And Zero at the Bone kind of tracks, I guess on one level, you could say it tracks the these hunters who are looking for the Burmese pythons mm -hmm. in the Everglades. But actually, it's so much more than documenting a crisis. It's much more about this kind of haptic experience of confronting a primal creature, right? Absolutely. It, it initially started as a kind of documentary project. And as I was looking at the images, I realized that I had always been kind of hiding behind this excuse of needing documentary or some kind of situation to get to a deeper place that I was trying to talk about in my work. And with that project, it just became clearly obvious. And I committed to moving in that direction, just really moving away from documentary. And the landscape there, the animals that I was encountering, the whole environment became much more about this mythological language and an imagined landscape. And once I committed to that way of looking at it and trying to make images in that way, it was super liberating because I kind of shed, it was one of those moments where you just like shed the weight of this tradition that I had been trying to carry on my shoulders because I loved it. And because it was, those were my heroes, documentary photographers, kind of that classic Magnum school, although more in the kind of Joseph Kadelka lyrical poetic space, it was just very freeing to commit to a vision that had been there all along, but kind of covered up in a way where I was trying to kind of mirror this convention. What I find so compelling about your your work and this project in particular, which was my first encounter with your work, is that it feels more akin to sort of reaching for our subconscious state than anything tangible or kind of in real life. And the photographs feel like this real invitation to surrender our preconceptions and allow this cymatic response to take over. And I've said this to you before, but it, it really reminds me of the sensation of going to gong meditation in the way mm. that, you know, the gong vibrations can unlock different aspects of your psyche, but you're kind of conjuring this experience through visual vibrations. And I appreciate this sounds, my, may sound esoteric to some people, but I, for me, it's a big part of why I'm drawn to your work and the experience of being with it. Yeah, I mean, that resonates very true with me and the project. When I was making the work, that's what I was feeling. And that's what I was connecting to in the environment. And I guess it shines through a bit, <laughs> which I'm very happy about. And again, this was this project kind of marks a departure into that space. And I even in practice, I began working in a different way, starting to, to experiment with multiple exposures and layering images to kind of create works that would more resonate in a way that's like just saying more directly what I was feeling, like always trying to connect the terrestrial to the celestial using images of water that also looks like it could be the, the cosmos or stars reflecting in it with a crocodile emerging from, from the abyss. And yeah, these, these animals and spaces began to kind of just take on much more of an archetypal shape. 
these kind of brooding, brooding symbols that are lurking in our unconscious, both familiar and somehow fearful. And that's, that's kind of the, the vocabulary or the dictionary of, of symbols that I was trying to create there and still trying to create. Yeah, talk a little bit about archetypes, because that's a really important symbolic language that you're playing with or kind of mm. trying to evolve through your work. Yeah, archetypes, when I, when I encountered this, I guess it's really this kind of Jungian concept of archetypes is where I'm more drawn from. It just really resonated with me as this universal language that has kind of worked itself as an image catalog throughout all cultures and lives in our collective conscious. So I wanted to use those, those symbols and images, revisit them in a way that I could also reinvent them at times in a way that was particularly personal and unique to my experience. And yeah, it's that kind of tension between creating that archetype that's both specific and speaks to the universal. And I think those are the ones that are the most successful. And could you tell us a little bit more about your research process? Because you you mentioned earlier that you you kind of had a sort of vision in mind for the work and and mm-hmm. how the project started to move closer to that vision. Like what are some of the key influences informing your practice? Hmm. Spending a lot of time at the Met. <laughs> <laughs> For reference and inspiration, I, I tend to gravitate towards imagery and finds from ancient archaeology all over the world, not specific to one, one culture or, or society. Because in my work, I'm always trying to connect to this kind of creative well of source or this yeah primordial whirlpool where things are originating from this like moment of birth or inception where things take form in their very first state there's something really raw and visceral about that so i'm looking yeah at a lot of cave art ancient statuary pottery all kinds of things like that the ways that Aboriginal societies would create imagery of star maps. These ways of making sense of the universe that we're in really inspire me. And I'm kind of drawing power from that and trying to funnel that into my work. I wanted to talk about Sacred Place as well, because that feels like this really important project which connects your lived experience with this new mode of image making. Could you talk a little bit about sort of motivations around that project and how it came into existence? Sacred Place was a project that I began in 2019. I went back to Vrindavan, India, which is the kind of source original town where the Hare Krishna faith emerged from. It's where the God Krishna spent his childhood. So it's, yeah, it's kind of the most important town in that in that world. And it's just temples. It's on a sacred river, the Yamuna. And I needed to go back there to make sense of this cultural heritage that I grew up in and now feel somehow separated from, but at peace with. And I needed to go back there on kind of my terms, open, but confident in where I am philosophically and spiritually. And up until that point, 
I just couldn't do it. Like I couldn't really even walk into a Hare Krishna temple. It was sort of too triggering. So going back to, to India and making this body of work, exploring the physical spaces, the rites and rituals, and the kind of broader cultural context that this all takes place in allowed me to more deeply come to terms with this religious tradition that I grew up in. And one of the questions that I went into that project was, would I be able to still access those kind of heightened states of ecstasy through the rituals that, that are around that religion without the element of faith? because I no longer believe. <laughs> I, I wanted to enter it through a kind of more universal understanding. And I was pleasantly surprised that I could. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah. And, you know, visually, the way I, I approached this project was kind of a mix of my older documentary tradition, but also trying to really zero in on these more reduced and abstract moments, again, that would kind of stand outside of time or outside of the specific situation. Ones that wouldn't really tell you exactly where we are or exactly where we are in time. Because the thing about Vrindavan is that it's considered an eternal place. It's actually, they consider it that it's living in a spiritual realm, even though it's located physically in India. It's this zone that is kind of in a bubble of eternity. And I, I ran across this quote from Joseph Campbell where he talks about mythology and ritual as finding these spaces where eternity shines through time. And that really resonated with me. And I kind of went into it with that vision and, and finding those, those moments. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about your work in the context of time and space and the sort of energy of these places, because you also shot the work at a particular time of day as well, right? Correct. Yeah. In the Hindu tradition, there's, or the Vedic tradition, there's these hours, I think it's like between 2am and 4am. Don't quote me on that. They're called the Brahma Mahorta hours. And it's this time zone where they believe that the boundaries between the spiritual and the material worlds are the most porous. So I kind of use that as a structure and a parameter to see if it would give me deeper access into in this, I kind of don't like using this word, but this liminal space between worlds. So I would photograph, I would get up really early in the morning when everyone else was kind of getting up to begin their, their morning prayers and rituals. And I, I would just start photographing. And that was pretty much what I did for six weeks every day. And I think it worked. I mean, there's something, there's like a fever dream suspension of reality that's, that's happening in those hours. And it's definitely things present themselves or the way things look and that in between becomes very apparent. It's such a remarkable body of work and, and you're turning it into a book, right? You're working on the book dummy at the moment. Yes, correct. Yep. I'm in the kind of final design phase and really excited for this project. It's going to take shape, I would say, in the next couple months. And hopefully it lands with a publisher that I'm happy with and 
it will be um, out in the world soon enough. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, this project in, in part was published in Aperture uh, in the Utopia issue. And I was really thrilled that they matched me with Pico Ayer, who's a writer whose work I just love. And he connected with the work, I think partly because he is of Indian ancestry, but grew up not in India and has a European name. And I'm kind of the opposite. Mm. <laughs> and he found that really interesting, like that I'm a white man growing up in the U.S. with an Indian name. And he wrote a lot about that kind of current of cultural exchange that has been happening for millennia between the Occident and, and India. So, yeah, hopefully that text also can appear in the book. It would be really nice to, to see that in the world. And in the last few years, you kind of touched upon this before, but your work is becoming less figurative and it, it continues to build upon this trajectory of harnessing photography as this tool to access worlds and sensations beyond language. And it's really on this sort of trajectory of moving from the observational, as we've been talking about, into more abstraction. And I'm really curious what's driving that for you and why you're interested in subverting the camera in that way it just feels like the natural progression to move to more reduced more simplified more essential visions and there was also this inner feeling to move away from direct observation photography and start creating the most reduced kind of rarefied versions of the symbols and language that i was feeling inside so I took that practice and that idea into the studio and started creating more sculptural works that I would then photograph and the photograph is the final product. And these images are, are purely abstract gradients of light and different shapes. I'm working with a lot of, again, these kind of primordial volcanic colors that all kind of point to, in a sense, the violent beginnings of the universe. And that practice has also, you know, marked a, a, a big transition and a liberation. It's always just reminds me of how amazing it is to be an artist that you can constantly explore new spaces and new ways of working. And I think that's what drives me as an artist is that if you have this curiosity, there's really just endless ways to explore it and that sense of discovery is like nothing else. I'm still connecting with similar motifs and shapes in this abstract work. Like I think a constant, which is pretty obvious through all my work, are celestial spheres and bodies and serpentine shapes. I feel like the serpentine archetype is something that has worked its way through my, my projects for, for many years. It's always a serpentine shape working its way through darkness somehow. And I find, you know, in, in art history, the, the snake is obviously a very loaded mythological uh, figure. And it's, it sort of represents the straddling between, between spaces and something that is both terrifying and represents something that we need to look at and examine. And it's something that sort of forces its way out of our unconscious and is an emissary between worlds. 
I keep returning to it. <laughs> yeah, this body of work you're referring to is Origin and Ends, right? Correct, yes. And that's ongoing? That is ongoing, yep. I, I kind of spin into it and then I spin out of it and now I, I'm going back into it. I'm just considering new ways to do it. I'm trying to find ways to bring my work out of the two-dimensional space and make it more sculptural and object-like. I'm not exactly sure what form that is, but I have been envisioning working with glass makers and ways of using photosensitive materials to embed images inside glass forms. We'll see, we'll see where that goes. I think as a, again, always trying to move outside of what was once familiar, I'm trying to, to, I think, move away from the camera ultimately. An English photographer or artist, I, I can't even call him a photographer, Gary Fabian Miller. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with his work? Yeah. Yeah. Some of his work has really inspired me in his process. And uh, Adam Fuss as well, the way that they work is really just darkroom oriented and would like to see what I could do in that space. So I started revisiting a color darkroom making, uh, yeah, photograms, also really inspired by David Benjamin Sherry in that, in that way. It's interesting to think about your work existing either within the darkness of reality or the darkness in the darkroom, <laughs> that it's thriving in those spaces. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as well, because you've been sort of playing with AI, right, within your work and just kind of experimenting with that. How's that been going? Yeah, I have been really just dipping a toe in privately. I haven't really shared anything. I'm just trying to learn the process, its, its parameters, how far it can push it how it might be useful in my work. I'm certainly not there yet. I think conceptually, it's really interesting that you can create images that are both chaotic and unpredictable in a sense that they're working off of this mysterious algorithm, which nobody can possibly comprehend. And that it's also drawing off of the collective body of imagery that all humanity has ever made. As far as like the results, I'm not fully convinced that it's what I want to do or in the direction I want to go. It's funny, I just did this portrait of an artist and my whole intention was to kind of combine the photograph I took of him with kind of AI elements that I created in mid-journey. And I was editing yesterday and I was like, I think what I did was enough. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I need to kind of involve AI in, mm. in this project. But yeah, it's something I think we should explore and embrace. I'm never one to kind of look away from the march of technology that's inevitable. I'm not nostalgic about the past or trying to cling to old ideas or methods I, I like what Laurie Simmons said about AI because she's using it now. And she said, I'm using it because it's there, because it exists. Mm. And I think that's all the justification anyone ever, ever needs. I mean, I remember when digital kind of first came out, and I know digital and AI are extremely different things, but, you know, I was just like, you know what, Cartier-Bresson would immediately pick up a digital camera if he had one in 1932. He kind of innovated with the Leica, and that was the forefront of technology at the time. And he did he used that tool because it 
served his his goals. So yeah, I think as artists, we just need to examine these technologies, not be afraid of them, and see how they are useful to our practice. And I think it's important to kind of look in the face of inevitability and be okay with that. Yeah, there's definitely something to that. I'm I'm still forming how I feel about AI, but I think, Mm -hmm. you know, Laurie makes some really good points. I think how Charlie Engman is sort of contextualizing it with his practice was really interesting. And one of the most resonant for me sort of pro AI takes was from Maisie Cousins, who's Mm -hmm. uh, this British artist who was talking about it kind of as uh, as this tool of accessibility in that it mm. opens up worlds that she may not be financially able to shoot in. She can imagine worlds and scales of worlds that go beyond the limits of her studio, which was a really compelling and kind of unexpected when I first read her essay about it on Darklight. Yeah, just a really unexpected take, but completely poignant and mm. worthy I think it's yeah. really interesting I'm I'm fascinated to see where it goes I think as you say we will see a shift towards acceptance and then that's really when interesting things can happen right when people actually start to really explore the tools and see what can be born from it right exactly and it's at the end of the day the way that we feel about the end product is ultimately going to be it always comes down to like the artist and how the artist is utilizing that in a thoughtful way or not and yeah i like that note on accessibility is really important i mean i can think of examples for like maybe a commercial or fashion photographer that has ideas for using sets or elements that they just can't organize or afford and you know now you can really easily do that. You can create whatever set you want, light your subject according to the lighting in your AI environment and blend them seamlessly. And that's that's totally valid. Totally a, a valid way of working. Yeah. I mean, for me, I resonate more with one-of-a-kind images mm-hmm. that don't have that re- reproducible aspect of it. So painting <laughs> or, yeah. Im- or images produced camerlessly in the dark room that don't have that aspect of reproducibility inherent in them. But yeah, let's, let's see where it goes. I think it's a really exciting space and just conceptually and philosophically, I think we we need to look deeper into it and, and kind of embrace it. I was curious to talk to you about the early days of mm-hmm. your artistic career because I don't think we talk about this enough in our industry and it's such an intense period of like identity forming and surviving. Mm -hmm. I was curious kind of how those early days for you professionally, how they sort of manifested, you know, did you have any particular survival strategies that helped you Mm -hmm. get through it? Yeah, I did renovation. (laughs) I start in art school. I, I got a job as a house painter and from there I learned a lot of other skills and got requests from people just walking around in my dirty clothes and tool having tools on me people would ask me to do things and that kind of became my survival strategy as in terms of how to support myself and i built that into a little business 
where I had a station wagon and a bunch of tools and I would just service people in the area and fix things. And that allowed me to kind of really work on my own schedule, make it decent amount of money. I was very disciplined about not overextending myself financially or taking on responsibilities that would would deplete me. And I always had the goal of saving up money and then working on long form documentary projects, which required travel. And I would kind of wrap up the business, sublet my room and travel for like three to six months at a time. And that was a, a lot of people in my school would just go directly from graduation to New York and start assisting and getting in that in that space. And I wanted more life experience. I didn't, I knew New York would always be there for me. It's not going anywhere. And I felt like as a human being, I needed to collect a lot of experience and observe the world and have a very broad palette of understanding of this world we live in to then make art from and respond from. So that kind of decade from 20 to 30 was really that cycle of working and doing projects. I had no uh, editorial or commercial objective. I don't think I made a dollar from photography until I was about 30. So that, yeah, that was, that was my method. I kind of avoided getting into the professional ilk in New York. And then at a certain point, I was like, okay, now it's time. I'm 30. <laughs> I better get on this. Uh, it takes a long time to a lot of momentum and a lot of effort to build a career in New York that's sustainable. Mm. And I, at that point, I had already kind of felt behind the game a little bit. So it's a lot of catch up, but things can also happen quickly. And for me, it's been very slow and steady of, you know, essentially at 30, starting to assist and getting into the industry and then getting some opportunities in fashion. And I've just had a really a broad variety of experiences and, and jobs that has made me a really diverse commercial photographer. I can pretty much do anything. And that has been both wonderful because it's allowed me to make a living, but it's also worked against me in the sense where commercially, I didn't really develop a singular vision in the way that I did with my personal practice. And now I'm bringing those two worlds together. And it's funny, that was always the advice that I got was like, bring your worlds together. Are you ready for some quick fire questions? I am. Okay. How do you deal with self-doubt? I look at the evidence. At this point, I've done enough things. I've had enough experiences of hitting a wall and then working through it that I know when I'm enveloped in self-doubt there's this kind of thread of confidence that will pull me through that I've done this before. And I kind of now utilize self-doubt and uncertainty. I leverage that as a, as a creative tool. I kind of let myself sit in it and feel lost. And I think that's a really beautiful place to be as an artist because it allows you to kind of begin again and reassess everything that you thought you knew. And if you're not like clinging to, you're not clinging or really attached to a specific outcome, then in that space of uncertainty and self-doubt, something opens up and newness is allowed to come through. So I embrace it. How did success change your work? I suppose success is 
a validation that or an affirmation that you are fulfilling your potential. And I'm speaking more to artistic success when you create something that resonates with you, that matches your inner vision. I see it more as a affirmation or a confirmation that my commitment to this is that I'm, I'm on the right path. And what does the practice of art give you and enable you to do that perhaps if your life would have gone in a different direction, you wouldn't have access to? I think being an artist enables me to be a conduit and a conduit for something much broader than myself as an individual. And that feeling of kind of channeling something through you and using a medium to express that physically in the world is probably the most beautiful thing to me. It's kind of when you get out of your own way and the ego dissolves a little bit and something moves through you. And I found that art is, does that for me pretty frequently. And I, I don't know what else. I haven't count, encountered much that, that can do that for me. And is there anything you're currently unlearning? That's a really good question. Yes, procrastination. <laughs> I am unlearning procrastination and unlearning unuseful habits that inhibit my creative process. And that could be from poor time management, distraction, allowing admin to become the primary focus of my week instead of making things. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, definitely unlearning how to prioritize differently. Do you still think photographs can shift thinking and consciousness? Incrementally. Um, I don't think they shift consciousness in the way that like Lewis Hines work or Jacob Rees work did. I think we're beyond that now because of the just you know, in, intense mass amount of images. And perhaps now that we're all globally mistrusting images in a way that we, we didn't before, this kind of doubt of what we're seeing, rightfully so, but also we kind of should have never trusted images in a way because all photographs are inherently lies or manipulations. Yeah, I think, I think they can incrementally and on an individual level. But images now are so transient and forgettable because they're instantaneously replaced by a new one. And I think that's the beauty of seeing images in the space of a gallery or in the context of a book, because that stillness, that concentration and intention allows you to, to kind of sit with that more. And I think in that opportunity, it gives you more potential for for shift. But I mean, it, it, it is one of my hopes with image making is that it can, can kind of change the channel and consciousness just a little bit to dial into a different frequency and other possibilities. And to finish up, I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show, and that's what matters more to you, the process of making your work or the final imagery? For me, it's process. It's definitely process. Being an artist is, is kind of a way of being it's a meditation. It's a way of expressing my reverence to the mystery of the universe. And perhaps I've replaced <laughs> replaced religion with art, but 
I think for me, it's, it's definitely a process. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Val. It was so great to speak to you. It was a total honor. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.